Wednesday Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show after our one-week hiatus. We're going to be talking about quite a bit of news this week. Um, We'll be talking with Simon Ducks about the Southern Cross Next Cable, which will be landing in Sydney in the next couple of weeks, and also some commentary around the Australian space industry. We'll be talking to Rowan Pearce about an interesting chat he had this week with a TPG executive about their so-called smart capex approach to network investment. And he'll also be filling us in on the war on SMS phishing. But first up, Phil Britt, Aussie Broadband. They announced a $340 million plus takeover deal for Over the Wire this week. Uh, The Over the Wire board has agreed to this. It's a big transaction. And Rowan Pearce caught up with Phil to talk all about it earlier this week. Yeah, so what we looked at was um, there was a number of different things that we were looking to add to our business suite. And we could have gone and done, I guess, multiple smaller acquisitions and then tried to bring all those pieces in. Whereas Over the Wire was a company we identified had all of the pieces that we're after, which was um, primarily the cloud and security piece but also the um, tier one voice platform they've they've built is very attractive to us. Um, So it it sort of ticked all of the boxes. Um, They've got a really good team, a really really smart team um, that's also highly compatible with our team and and the value is very similar. So we feel that the mix and the fit will be really good and it will basically speed up um, what we're trying to do probably by about three to four years. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I guess I was going to ask about the kind of like, you know, whether you expected a good cultural match because I guess with like 300 or so uh, over the wire employees joining the Aussie broadband team, that's going to be a fairly kind of substantial portion of your final headcount. Yeah, look, we've got about 700 today. They've got they've got 300. So yeah, it'll be a, be a very large organisation. Um, We've spent quite a bit of time with um, with their team during due diligence, um, and we, we believe there's there's a lot of compatibility there. Oh, I guess the other thing is because you do have that kind of um, you know it's almost like putting the final pieces in the puzzle. Are you expecting like a relatively quick integration and kind of realization of synergies? No, look, it's going to take time. There's there's certainly um, some quick wins that we can do, um, but the synergy phasing will be over a three-year period, um, and there's a, there's a, a lot of elements that come into that, um, building some uh, building additional fibre network, um, yeah, basically running off existing contracts, all those sorts of things. So it's certainly not going to be a quick um, uh, a quick piece with the synergies. It's going to be a, a, a develop it over time, get it right. This is our first acquisition. It needs to go smoothly. So we want to take our time, make sure it's done right, and um, that we don't destroy any value on the way through, as so often happens with these things. Well, I, I guess, like, um, kind of like post the acquisition, do you think you're going to keep on building up those business capabilities, or is that kind of like, you know, this, this deal is going to deliver what you need? No, look, we'll, we'll definitely keep developing. I, I think Aussie's really showing that it, it wants to keep innovating and keep changing the, the game in telco. Um, and this is really just the beginning to us. We've we've had some really good traction in, in the business space today, but it's primarily around broadband and voice. 
um, this now gives us the full suite of products that we can um, we can bring to businesses and, and really disrupt that space. I guess the other thing is you, you did mention, you know, it's your first acquisition. Um, do you expect, I guess, are you going to wait till this is better down or are there kind of other acquisitions on the horizon? Uh, look, I can't give away those sorts of secrets, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, um, I, yeah, I guess I'm, I, I'm kind of interested, um, you know, I, I, I won't push you on it, but would it be like, you know, future acquisitions, would it be, I guess, looking more of, you know, picking up another RSP business, for example, and kind of like building out your scale that way? Yeah, look, there's certainly options. Um, we're, we're doing, we continue to do well growing um, that business organically, and we can do that um, a lot cheaper than we can by buying customer bases. But we're not adverse to buying um, customer bases, but we've got to find the right one, and and the vendors have got to be reasonable about what's um, yeah what they want for the business. So. That's Phil Britt from Aussie Broadband. Now moving on, um, the federal government passed its new Telstra bill this week in the Senate. What's that? What that is all about? is basically ensuring that as Telstra decouples its infrastructure business into new subsidiaries different shareholder structures, that the various regulatory obligations that they have are maintained in, in the new entities. Anyway, um, Coalition Minister Jane Hume was the one prosecuting the case for the bill in the Senate this week. Let's hear what she had to say about it. This bill will amend a range of telecommunication legislation to maintain regulatory obligations that protect consumers and promote competition in response to Telstra's proposed restructure. These obligations cover core parts of Telstra's long-standing regulatory arrangements, including its corporate obligations put in place at the time of its privatisation. Without legislative amendment, there is a risk that Telstra's obligations would become less effective or cease to apply to its successor entities following this or any future restructure. While there have been significant changes in the telecommunication industry over the past decade, Telstra continues to play a key role nationally in both metropolitan, regional, rural and remote Australia. Telstra's role has long been underpinned by a range of regulated consumer safeguards, including the universal service obligation, which requires Telstra to deliver basic telephone and payphone services in rural and remote areas, the customer service guarantee, the network reliability framework, priority assistance, as well as the operation of the triple zero emergency call service. The effect of this legislation is that obligations which presently apply to Telstra under its current organisational structure will continue to apply following Telstra's restructuring. This, in turn, will be important to achieving the continued protection of consumers, promotion of competition and support of Telstra's public interest roles in Australia's telecommunications market. And I commend the bill to the Senate. Okay, moving on, we're going to take a look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the Chief Editor of Communications Day. Welcome, Simon. Hello there, Graham. Now, you had a, um, a lead story this week about a cable that maybe isn't a cable on people's minds much, but it will be soon, the Southern Cross Next Cable, and it's landing in Sydney in the next couple of weeks. That's right, Graham. It's uh, four to five years in the making. Uh, very interesting uh, cable because uh, this is one of the few cables coming across what you'd uh, classify as the southern region of the Pacific. And uh, of course, it's uh, being built by Southern Cross Next. And essentially, 
uh, the shareholders of that are Optus, Singtel, Telstra, Spark and Verizon. So, you know, the carriers are putting a lot into this. Uh, they also have the Southern Cross cable, which uh, is coming to its end of life. It had an extension because it's actually been uh, not having very many problems, and so they're able to extend its life up to 2030. Uh, but the Southern Cross Next cable is essentially going to deliver a 72 terabit per second cross Pacific uh, subsea cable, which is uh, quite a stonking amount of extra uh, bandwidth coming on stream there. And while Southern Cross original cable uh, is still in operation as they overlap, you're looking at 92 terabits per second. Uh, you know, it's a big cable. We're talking almost 16,000 kilometers that they've come. And uh, the interesting thing with the cable is that uh, this is one of the few cables that actually bypasses Hawaii as well. Uh, you know, we're starting to get a few various choke points. Uh, we've had uh, Bevan talking about uh, some of the ones up in Southeast Asia. We have Guam uh, potentially as well building in that way. And uh, of course, Hawaii. So this is uh, going to be quite an interesting cable. And we're looking at uh, it turning up at Kuji on the 14th of December. So it's definitely on its way and uh, I guess ready for service next year sometime. Yep, very much. They're looking at uh, ready for service at Q2 2022. Okay, um, moving on, um, there was a big space industry symposium this week and lots of people, uh, I, I guess, talking up their book. But a parliamentary committee looking into the space industry didn't want to miss out on all the fun. And they made some pretty interesting recommendations about where they think government should move in terms of space. They did indeed. Uh, it's uh, long awaited uh, just because of all of the focus uh, that there is on the space sector at the moment. And uh, so there's been a parliamentary uh, committee into developing Australia's space industry. And uh, it was chaired originally by Barnaby Joyce, who obviously uh, moved on to other duties. Uh, but it, it, there was a plethora of uh, submissions and uh, the reports just come out. And uh, I will say there's, there's some interesting uh, uh, findings in uh, the inquiry. Uh, obviously, these are recommendations to the government and we're going to see what uh, the government will actually adopt. Uh, I, one of the key ones that came out of it was the fact that uh, the Australian Space Agency, they're talking about granting it a statutory authority role and uh, separating its industry engagement from its regulatory uh, functions, which is a very positive step. I mean, everybody across each sector was clamouring for this. And uh, what it does is it, it, it stops the ASA just becoming a sort of fanboy for the sector, uh, trying to push it on, and on, on, on that side, but actually having uh, the wherewithal to uh, regulate and uh, create uh, or work and implement some of the policy uh, as well. So uh, I think that's a really good step. Uh, they were talking about uh, potentially having this statutory authority giving better coordination on all space matters across uh, government. And uh, some of the other things that came out of that also as a side result was the fact that um, we have a, a strange model in Australia around cost recovery when it's applied to uh, launches, which essentially makes Australia uh, disadvantage when you compare it to our near neighbours uh, because of the fact that you could be looking for a fee of up to $190,000 for a launch. Now, you can imagine if you're just shooting up uh, small sats uh, on a, a various payload, that actually 
uh, becomes a big problem for you because you can just go and do that with Rocket Lab in New Zealand, for example. So, you know, it's, it's really key that they're looking at this. In the submissions uh, uh, process, the Northern Territory government uh, honed in on this as well, and they were keen to try and see some movement on that. So there's some recommendations about uh, kicking on the moratorium and potentially reviewing those charges completely, which, you know, that can only be seen as a, a really positive thing. So uh, the other thing uh, that it mentioned uh, a little bit more woolly was that the federal government uh, should be considering uh, a national launch strategy. Uh, you know, we'll have to see what the detail comes off uh, on the back of that. And they also uh, want the government to be looking at how to actually get uh, civil or private investment into the space sector as well. And, uh, you know, when you're looking at a national launch strategy, we, we realistically can have uh, two launch. We've uh, got an equatorial launch, uh, uh, obviously, uh, up in Arnhem Land, sun synchronous launch uh, with uh, a southern launch down in Whalers Way. Do we need a third launch pad? That is up for debate. But, of course, Queensland is very uh, much pushing uh, uh, this uh, area near Bowen as well. So, you know, hopefully we're going to get a bit more coordination on that. And uh, that leads me into a couple of the things that I would suggest uh, possibly that the, the inquiry could have looked at uh, a little bit more, um, uh, things that I w would suggest were potential emissions. Uh, I think that there has to be a real move if you're absolutely considering driving the space sector that you have to increase investment as a percentage of GDP. And any country that's been successful in ramping up the space sector has done this and they have to make a commitment toward that. So I would like to see some movement on the, the government actually looking at this uh, quite hard, you know, if they're going to do the investment. Uh, I'd also suggest that uh, there was a tiny bit of an overfixation on sovereign space capability. I think you've got to be a little bit careful there because obviously in some areas of space we are world leading, uh, but in some of the other key areas of space, we're going to have to rely on our very close partners for uh, helping us deliver on that. And uh, you can argue that if the government is already uh, working with the likes of Amazon uh, Web Services and Microsoft, that you know this model of having everything absolutely 100% built in Australia is not necessarily one uh, that we have to follow through with because of the fact that it's just making sure that we're completely integrated in the process and wherever we can add the value, essentially. The other one I thought was there were no real concrete uh, measures on how to encourage more civil private spend in space. Uh, for now, the government, I think, uh, will dominate funding, and you'll see most of that coming through a lot of their defence uh, uh, projects. And I think the elephant in the room for me uh, is ensuring that all the policy for space, like, like defence and foreign affairs, is driven federally. So we, we currently have a situation where states are competing with each other on space investments, and I think that needs to stop, and it needs to be coordinated centrally, and it would be great to see some of movement on that. You know, to give you an example, when you've got uh, New South Wales actually driving almost 50% of small sat development um, for the country, then it sort of makes sense that New South Wales should be leading uh, that particular process in a coordinated way rather than us seeing various pockets of it being uh, invested in uh, to drive local state uh, initiatives, essentially. 
And uh, another example of that was the UK-Australia space bridge uh, discussions. It was fascinating to me to watch uh, the UK space sector having to dial in and listen to seven presentations on seven different days from seven different uh, states and territories, as opposed to a coordinated Australian approach. Here, here, Simon, there is um, probably one of the more ridiculous aspects of Australian Federation is the fact that these, in international terms, tiny little states have couple of million people each or compete against each other it's just absolutely ridiculous and you're right a strong space industry requires unity thank you once again for joining us thanks again graham now continuing our look at the week that was we have rowan pierce the executive editor of comms day welcome rowan Hey, Graham. Now, um, first up, you had a, a very interesting interview that you ran in Comms Day this week regarding TPG and the so-called smart capex, quote-unquote, approach to uh, network investment and management. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I had an um, interesting chat to TPG's data and analy- uh, analytics leader, I can't even say the word, uh, Bobby Shake, and it was on the kind of sidelines of an Amazon Web Services event. Because apparently it is the... Um, AWS has said it's a year of data and analytics, so it was quite appropriate. Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting. Like it's basically this smart capex framework. It's really an extension of um, a framework that Bobby originally developed in Australia to support Vodafone's 4G rollout, and that was actually subsequently adopted by the kind of broader Vodafone group as best practice, which is a kind of pretty good win for the local business, really. So. Um, Bobby essentially leads up quite a compact data analytics team. I think it's about 20 people. And one of their strategic focuses is actually supporting the 5G roller. What they've done is they've taken that kind of um, uh, original smart capex framework and extended it. Um, and so, you know, to guide and optimize capex spend. And what Bobby said, it's, it's basically sophisticated enough to look beyond just the kind of basic demographic data and trends, but also take into account things like, you know, the more complicated product set you're getting with 5G, for example, fixed wireless. And also the kind of uh, the, the interaction around the forecast demand for like 3G, 4G, and 5G services over a kind of you know one to two decade year horizon, um, and as well as issues around 4G fallback and um, network resilience. So it's quite interesting stuff. Actually, the other the other thing that um, we spoke about, which wasn't directly related to 5G, was um, some of the work that he's doing, which I thought was very interesting around um, uh, uh, taking some of their kind of own internal analytics efforts and their kind of the internal and external data sources they're ingesting and finding ways to actually expose that to some of their business customers as kind of like a analytics service as kind of a value add for them really. Okay, interesting stuff. Moving on, and the federal government had a bit to say this week about some regulatory regulatory changes they're making. Now it's my turn to trip over my tongue. Regulatory changes they're making to enable the war on SMS phishing. Yeah, neither neither of us can speak today. <laughs> um, yeah, so th- this was a this was quite a big announcement from the government, really. I mean, they got their two minister treatment plus guest appearances from um, Telstra CEO Andy Penn and also Optus as head of regulatory affairs Andrew Sheridan. So I guess the context is there's been this real epidemic of particularly uh, flu bot SMS malware in Australia, and this is government's effort to kind of counter this. I think um, particularly as well with COVID, you've seen um, a lot of SMS phishing themed around things like online shopping and deliveries. I know I get a lot. So the government was kind of, 
I thought maybe a little bit vague in the actual announcement, but essentially what they've done is change some of the um, telco, telecommunications interception regulations to add a new explicit exception for carriers relating to tackling SMS phishing messages. So the idea is that carriers can potentially scan messages seeking to match kind of you know known malicious URLs or, or compare send information to the URL in a message to assess whether it was genuine. So Telco has been keen on these changes for a while because it gives them a bit more legal certainty to kind of like deploy some of these measures around phishing. And also Telstra gave a kind of few details of their plans now, like they're, um, they're going to launch a pilot which will initially kind of involve employees and family members and then have a broader rollout next year as part of their kind of cleaner pipes initiative. Okay, terrific stuff, Rowan. Thanks very much for joining us today. Cheers. That's it, the Comms Day Live this week. See you next time.